Oh, buenos dias, senorita. My siestas are getting shorter and shorter. Oh, look at all the people. And welcome to Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. Hey, Michael, mi amigo, pay attention, it's show time. So it is. And what darling people I have sitting under me. Pierre, you rascal, you. Let's put on the show. Mon ami, I am always ready, as you say, to put on the show. <whistles> oh, pardon, madame. That whistle was for my good friend, Fritz. Ach, to lieber, I almost fell out of my upper perch. Uh, glad to see you all aboard. Uh, sure, or <laughs> wherever you are. My goodness, you're all staring at us. We better start the show rolling. Welcome to Detour to Neverland, where you are the author of your own Disney story. There's a lot of satisfaction in developing ideas into realities. And you can find magic in your everyday life. If you do what you really want to do, you feel like you're playing. How can you write your first chapter today? Dreams are how we figure out where we want to go. Life is how we get there. I'm headed this way. We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine. Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 247. We are continuing our storytelling series today, talking about Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. So if you're new here, the goal of these storytelling series is to make sure that the next time we ride an attraction or a ride that we get the full appreciation for it. We understand the full story of what is being told to us by the Imagineers so that we catch something new, we feel a different emotion, whatever it might be. With today's attraction, the Enchanted Tiki Room, the story is not that deep. Let's go ahead and get that out of the way. I think we all basically understand the premise of what we're walking into, and we'll go over it, and maybe we'll catch some things that we didn't notice before, this is one, and I almost feel like it's it's half of that Haunted Mansion conversation that we had before, of knowing how this came to be, you have to smile ear to ear once you're there. So I think this is just one of those unique ones that you have to know the history to really get it. Well, and we could even tie it back to last week, not last week's, but last episode that we did with Muppet Vision 3D where, you know, personally, the history gave the show itself so much more meaning. And I think the same thing applies here. I mean, I think a lot of people could, you know, pass up on the Enchanted Tiki Room or just walk by it and not give it a second thought. You know, you could say it's dated, this, that, whatever. And, you know, I think learning the history does give you hopefully a better appreciation for what it is that you're experiencing, and also how important it was at the time that it was created. Yeah, so hopefully that's a little taste of what's to come in this episode. So we're going to walk through some of the key facts, go through the history, break down the story as much as we can, and then we'll get to our Neverland scores and final thoughts at the very end of the episode. So the key facts, so this was the very first audio animatronic show in Disneyland that opened in 1963. And they use this audio animatronic word, which I'm going to have to say that this whole episode because you can't say that word, correct? I've gotten better. It's a good thing that we waited a while to do the Tiki Room because I can say it if it's a good day. So just fingers crossed it's a good day. Animatronic. That's what I'm referring to. Okay. Anybody missed it. 
but audio animatronic was like on every piece of marketing material, they used this terminology in the TV show when they were promoting this. Walt always made a point to talk about audio animatronics, audio animatronics. So that's probably the biggest kind of takeaway that you need to know about when it opened in Disneyland. Then they moved it over into Magic Kingdom. It was there for opening day on October 1st, 1971. And it was also an opening day attraction in Tokyo Disneyland in 1983. Another key point to kind of keep in mind for this attraction throughout is that many believe that this was Walt's favorite attraction that was ever built. And so... I mean, that's kind of a big deal. You can't just throw something out like that lightly, you know? I mean, because with Walt, it just hits different, you know? Before this, what would you have guessed his favorite attraction was? Oh, goodness. Maybe the carousel? Just because he had that connection with his daughters with the carousel? I was going to say carousel progress. Oh, uh, Okay. Fair. We're kind of where, on the same wavelength. I thought that's where you were going when you first started saying it. Ooh, like it's a small world. I mean, there's so many. And again, we're not Walt, so we can't speak for him. But this, you know, a lot of people speculate that this could be the one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's talk about the history. And we've done our best to build this chronologically and to share just kind of the high points and the building blocks of this story of how it came to be. And so the inception of the show is peculiar as the first versions had this as a restaurant with a show included. And it was supposed to be in this never built Chinatown expansion off of Main Street in Disneyland. So and that itself is like, what? Yeah, just because, you know, a Chinatown expansion, like, that's its own thing that I feel like never really gets talked about. But then, you know, this whole idea of, like, a dinner show is, you know, definitely something that definitely took us back when we started doing our research. And I feel like the more we read, the more it unfolded and the more details we found. And it was honestly reaching a point where I was getting a little stressed out. <laughs> I do just want to, that seems so weird to me because, I mean, I feel like it's understood that Main Street is based off of like small town USA. And specifically, I think a lot of people would reference Marceline, Missouri. Like that's mm -hmm. what it's supposed to be based off. There's no Chinatowns in Marceline, Missouri. There's a Chinatown in New York. In San Francisco. Big cities. Yeah. I mean, maybe he was just trying to keep up with, you know, what was new. I don't know kind of where his mind was going with that, especially to put, I don't know. I guess at the beginning it wasn't tiki themed. So we have to keep that in mind too. So we're going to talk about where that comes from later. But just, yeah, a dinner show in a Chinatown section of Main Street. So if you couple this Chinatown expansion and this dinner show idea, and then you also couple that with a trip to New Orleans that Walt took, and when he returned back, he brought back a little mechanical bird for Lily, and you would wind it up, and it would whistle and do all kinds of stuff. And this was kind of the spark of where he came back and said, I want to basically soup this up. I want to rig it up and make it into a show around singing birds. 
And it's so interesting that, I mean, it seems like from what we've read about Walt, that this is just kind of how he was. Like he just became very fixated on things. And like this mechanical bird just seemed to be his obsession. It is remarkable how much he picked up around the world around him and how he wanted to bring that into the movie screen, but also the parks. I mean, if you go to the Riviera Resort, and I know this is a tangent now, but Riviera Resort is all about this one trip that he and Roy and their wives, Lily and I don't know Roy's wife's name. Sorry. Um, took to the French Riviera. So it's like, and and that unfolded all of these different stories and all of the things that happened after that point. So it really is... He took the environment around him and created stories from it, which I think is the true mark of a master storyteller. Oh, absolutely. And that's kind of where, you know, this builds itself. So, of course, when we think about the Enchanted Tiki Room today, we automatically think Adventureland. Um, But since we mentioned before, the first idea was for Chinatown, it had to unfold to be this tiki backdrop Um, And then that kind of allowed it to fit in Adventureland. And this is where it's almost funny to just imagine, like, what would this bird dinner show be like anywhere other than Adventureland? Like, could it actually fit anywhere else? Tomorrowland would be weird. It'd be like robot birds. (laughs) The only other one that I think it could work in, actually, is New Orleans Square. I almost think you could do something with like the voodoo theme. Like bringing the birds to life or Uh, possibly. I just think like if you replace Tiki with like voodoo, you could play something off of that. The music would be good, I guess, is another strong point for New Orleans Square. But it is hard to imagine it somewhere any other than Adventureland. And when we think about that tiki backdrop, you know, there's more to that, too. It's more significant than maybe what it appears to be. So at the time, in California, around the 1950s and the 1960s, tiki was a big, like, pop culture movement. And it kind of allowed the attraction to be more popular. Do you know what pop culture movements you've been a part of in the past? The cheetah print movement? Can you um, that's, imagine? That's still a thing. Um, I think you might be the only one hanging on to it. Not true. <laughs> but if you go back to this Chinatown restaurant idea, the desire was to create this reservation-only restaurant with a dinner show. And they ran with this idea for a really, really long time. And it even got to the point where they got a sponsor. So Stouffer's, like the frozen lasagna company Stouffer's was going to be the sponsor of this attraction. And it got very far down the line, right? I mean, they had the show built out. They had the songs. They were doing demos. You know, they had like built up in the studio how the show was going to operate. They had the plaza. They were advertising for it. So, I mean, they were pretty far deep into this restaurant experience they had it perfectly choreographed basically to where the expectation was when guests came in their food would be waiting for them at the table they would come in you eat for i think you get like an hour maybe 
The show is 15 minutes, you leave. They have a 15-minute turnaround time where the staff is supposed to get everything cleaned up and reset, and then they do it all over again. So it was going to be like a well-oiled machine was kind of what they had built up in their head. But I mean, they had this well-planned. I mean, it wasn't just like, oh, let's make it a restaurant. Never mind. We're going to do a show instead. You know, it was fully thought out. Uh, Stouffer's, like you said, was the sponsor. And they weren't just sponsoring the Tiki Room, you know, this restaurant. Um, They were sponsoring a terrace that was adjacent to it, this Tahitian terrace. And it was going to be like a whole, uh, it kind of makes me think of like Journey into Imagination, you know, with that situation. It was going to be like a whole pavilion-ish type of thing. Yeah, I mean, and it just kind of grew and grew and grew on itself. And eventually Walt decided that this was becoming too big of a task and that the show was really what I would, I'll dare say it's what he had an interest in. He wasn't really interested in the restaurant. The restaurant seemed like an excuse to get the show. And eventually he just decided that it had outgrown the restaurant setting. So he took all the tables and the restaurant idea out and that caused Stouffer's to end their contract. And I can kind of agree with your point because the, the restaurant idea came from the fact that apparently in the beginning phases of Disneyland, I guess their food options were just bad. (laughs) I was trying to look for a good word, but bad for a lack of a better word. And I, from what I gathered, it was just kind of like cafeteria, but people still were like waiting in really long lines and the food just wasn't great. So this was like the next evolution of food, but that's not, like you said, that's not Walt, what Walt is interested in. He's not there for the food. He's there for the show. And that's kind of where he took a turn. And so when Stouffer's pulled out, and then, of course, at this time, they needed sponsors for pretty much everything to be able to pull anything off. Disney couldn't find any other sponsors, which then WED came in and saved the day. And they decided that they would cover the cost. So as a result, the Enchanted Tiki Room required guests to have a separate ticket, which had to be purchased separate from the usual ticket book and kind of e-pass system. And so this answers the question of if you've ever wondered why it's Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room instead of just the Enchanted Tiki Room. It's because is that the attraction was originally owned separately by WED Enterprises, whereas the rest of Disneyland was owned by the Walt Disney Company. And Walt owned WED solely, whereas the Walt Disney Company had shareholders. So it's really interesting. Imagine you get into the park and then you have to buy this separate ticket to see this new can't believe show with audio animatronics. And it's almost like you can you now understand why he marketed this so heavily because he's pocketing a lot of this money. Well, I was going to say it had it lived up to the hype at the time. It was heavily marketed Um, when it opened. They very strategically invited the press. I mean, it was a big deal. They put a lot of money into it. You know, a lot of people that we have come to know and love as far as Imagineers, like, worked on this attraction. So it was very well done, state-of-the-art because of these audio animatronics. 
And good job. You said the word very well. I was waiting for your approval. And it was just like, you know, everything kind of lined up for it to be successful. And I think people probably didn't have as much of an issue paying the extra cost to go because they were probably so intrigued with like, what is this? I mean, if you think about it, we've even talked about that today with Rise of the Resistance. Disney could easily say, okay, if you want to guarantee that you get to ride it, pay X amount of money and it would happen. You know, people went bad in eyelash. So I think the same thing was kind of happening here. Now, I believe I remember hearing it was like 75 cents for, you know, to be able to go in. So it wasn't like crazy. Uh, I feel like that's a lot for that time period. It might have been. I guess in today's times, 75 cents is like, well, of course. So I I would be interested, I guess, to know what like the conversion factor is. But people were willing. They were. They were willing. And that opening that you talked about as well, they invited the press but then they also invited 100 cast, cast members, members and guests to be the first people to experience this state-of-the-art attraction. It's It seems awesome. I would have loved to have been there. Well, and of course, all the Imagineers went because they were interested in like, is this going to flop? Is this going to be successful? Walt was there because he wanted to see the same thing. Like He wanted to see the look on people's faces. So, I mean... It was a production. I mean, just like today, how any kind of grand opening is a is a production. I want to revisit one little point because I think I maybe inferred the wrong things about WED funding it. And it's not necessarily about Walt putting money in his own pocket of a company that he solely owned. I think it was more so he he was desperate to see this come to life. And so he put basically his own money up for it to to make sure that this came true because they lost their sponsor. It was kind of a last minute thing. And so he saw it through to make sure that this happened and saw the light of day. Yeah, I completely agree. It's more so like we worked so hard on this and so many people put their time and effort into it. Like there's no way this is going to sit vacant. So I feel like we have to talk about all those details and we kind of broke it up into different categories because there are so many moving parts to the Enchanted Tiki Room. So I'm going to start with the birds, because when you think Tiki Room, if the birds aren't the first thing that come to your mind, I don't know what is. Dole Whip, maybe. <laughs> but with the, tiki, with the Tiki Room? You're right. Tiki Birds. Tiki Birds. So with these birds, so we talked about the mechanical bird that Walt was particularly fond of. Because of that, I think he also had a very specific idea for how he wanted these birds to look. But it's actually really funny. He never gave his Imagineers very specific instructions for what he wanted. You know, he might say, you know, you're going to work on birds. And he just left it at that. So they had the creative freedom. But at the same time, when you read all of these different accounts about that design process, Everyone said almost the same thing. They would basically just make, I mean, just birds on birds and birds. Like they just created so many sketches, so many models, just hoping that it would make Walt happy. Like that ultimate stamp of approval. And I can't even imagine like the stress that that puts on someone. But it's just like, 
you look at these sketches and they're all so different because they just covered such a variety, I think, of, you know, do they want cartoon birds? Does he want, you know, short, fat, little, you know, X, Y, Z, they did it all just to see what exactly would make Walt happy. It's so interesting to see the parallels on how he ran the theme parks to how he ran animation as well, because you hear a lot of those same stories about him running the animators, basically not giving very specific directions and them presenting it. And basically I'm saying like, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. You know, <laughs> like that's just kind of how he ran. And it had a very funny way of drawing out the very best work in people. I'd be interested to know who the people around him were. And it may have been Mark Davis, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Who the people around him were who are like almost breaking it down for the people two or three levels down, you know? Like, who is deciphering which direction they go? Or is it literally well, just a free-for-all? So that's the thing. So we, just to give everyone else a little insight, Brennan, what's the name of these books that we have? Mark Davis, in his own words, Imagineering the Disney Theme Parks. There's two volumes written by Pete Doctor and Christopher Merritt. So these are just massive, you know, like coffee table books that we bought um, because, of course, Imagineering interests us. So, you know, as I'm flipping through some of these pages, looking at these pictures of the birds and everything else that goes with it, there were so many people working on this. And it's kind of funny because it's like they're going back and forth with each other like, oh, well, Walt likes this. No, Walt likes this. I think this is what he wants. And I don't remember the exact quote in the book, but it was like Walt had heard basically that they were muttering to each other. So he just walks in the room and shouts, you know, who said that I like round heads and walks out. And it was that flip that switched for them to be like, he wants realistic birds. <laughs> and then they made realistic birds. And his response was, well, why didn't you do this in the first place? And like, it's just so funny, you know, just that interesting dynamic. I'm curious, like from you as a teacher's perspective, is it almost like when you're trying to help a child and like, you know, the answer, but you don't want to specifically tell them the answer. So you try to like leave little nuggets of information to like lead them along the way until you just tell them what you want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just seems like Walt was kind of, and maybe it was even he didn't know what he wanted. Which could be the case. But it's almost like there's this masterful creation process that he's able to put people through as a leader of like slowly but surely getting them there. They reach the verge of insanity and then they get it, you know? And it keeps them coming back for more because they feel successful. Because when they finally get his approval, it's like complete euphoria. Yeah. I mean... That might be it. I guess that would be a pretty good summary. So that's the birds. And then, of course, you know, when you see the birds today, they are pretty, you know, realistic with maybe a little bit of cartoon. You know, when we see them, we don't think, oh, my gosh, those are real. But they are more realistic compared to, you know, some of these other crazy drawings they had at the very beginning. 
So next we want to talk about the music. When you think about the music of this attraction, probably the most notable thing that kind of stays with you past. So they have the Tiki 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 Room, which I think I put too many Tikis in there. That was written by the Sherman Brothers. They also have Let's All Sing, like the Birdie Sing, the Hawaiian War Chant. And then at the end, of course, you have a rendition of Hi-Ho. And so the Sherman Brothers are brought on and this is one of those that in this book that we're reading, and this I'm going to read directly from the book because it's a quote from Richard Sherman. He wrote this about what the process was like of writing the Tiki 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 Room. And it's really cool. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth it at the end. So again, this is Richard Sherman saying, Walt's secretary called us up one day and asked us to come over to stage three at the studio. In the corner of the stage was a mock-up of a tropical room and we sat down on birch chairs in this mock-up. Mark was there, as in Mark Davis, along with many other people. He was designing the room, I suppose, but he was a sweetheart. But what we didn't know anything about this show, it was all rather confusing. So we sat down on birch chairs in the middle, and Walt said, Okay, now turn it on. So all of a sudden, down came a cascade of flowers, and they were all humming, orchids were singing, and they were all singing, Let's all sing like the birdies sing. And then the birds came down. We were thinking to ourselves, ourself, what in God's name is going on here? <laughs> I remember Larry Clemens. He was a comedy writer. He used to write a lot of Walt's lead-ins. He said, Walt, what is this thing? And my brother, Bob, like so many other people who had seen this new thing that Walt was doing, said, it's great. It's great. But what the heck is it? And Walt said, well, you're going to write a song about this. That's what. It's a great show, but nobody knows what the dang thing is all about. He didn't say dang. Uh-oh. Any ideas, boys? He said, I want to open this up at Disneyland, and I want to get it as soon as possible. You have to get on this thing. So we said, we'll write something. We have to think fast. Luckily, we remembered about two years earlier, we had written a lengthy calypso to cover a lot of boring footage showing how the Disney crews had carried tons of equipment to Tobago to film Swiss Family Robinson. And the group said, well, who do you want to sing it? So we were looking around at the room and we said, well, you could use a parrot. You could believe he would be singing words and he could sort of be an MC. So Walt immediately, and I mean immediately, he said, we'll have four parrots. We'll have a Dutch parrot. We'll have a Spanish parrot. We'll have a French parrot. We'll have all different parrots in the four corners of the room, and they'll all be contributing to this thing, and then we'll have them making comments and everything. So we said, great. You know what we'll do? Once we write the song, we'll get Larry Clemens. He'll write some funny jokes to add to it. The world's worst jokes that were ever written were written by Larry Clemens. George Bruns was actually the musician who wrote the arrangement, and we conferred together then. So again, I say it's a team effort. We did. We all did all of it, you know, and I believe Walt would always say he believed in team efforts. So if that doesn't give you a greater appreciation for the song written by the Sherman Brothers and really by the entire team, and just even in that speech, I think you can really hear through how passionate Walt was about this particular project. Well, and the other thing that really stood out to me after you know, just reading more about the whole process of how this came to be is that Walt always knew what he wanted 
but he didn't let everyone else into the idea all at once. You know, he might say, you're going to do music, you're going to design birds, you're going to design flowers. And they just knew this is what I'm doing for Walt. They didn't really know how it was all going to come together. And it's funny because this also makes me think of, so we've talked about Frozen 2 and we watched the documentary for Frozen 2 and how it just drove us crazy because they didn't know what the storyline was as they were going through. And this sounds vaguely familiar, don't you think? It does. It was like there's a lot of moving parts and Walt was the only one who was privy to the whole thing. Yes. So maybe this gives me a better appreciation for Frozen 2. I wouldn't go that far. So the last thing to talk about are really just the vocals and the voices that went into this because they were pretty significant also. So two of the voices that can be heard are Wally Bag? Bag? How would you say that? Bag. Bag? Okay. It just seemed too easy. It's not just B-A-G people, so just to clear that up. And then Fulty, Fulton Burley. Good God. Yeah. I'm sorry. For someone with a very complicated maiden name, you're not <laughs> doing much respect to these people's I'm, names. I'm not. They voiced Jose and Michael, and they were both performers in the Golden Horseshoe Review, which was in Frontierland. And then Fritz is voiced by Thurl Ravenscroft, who has a lot of other voice work and things like the Haunted Mansion, Country Bear Jamboree, the Disneyland Railroad, and the Mark Twain Riverboat. So, again, kind of using the best of the best for Walt's baby here. Yeah. And if we talk about uh, Wally Bag, at the opening ceremony, he had like a behind-the-scenes role where he was talking as his character to the guest. And so he was listening and basically like ad-libbing along with guests. And so the bird was talking directly to people. And supposedly it was hilarious. I mean, it definitely seems like they had a great time at that opening day. And that is just kind of one of those little things that would add to it. So, of course, the last thing we have to talk about before we get into other fun things like overlays is we have to talk about Brendan's favorite, Mark Davis. I mean, it's inevitable. So he was a big part of creating the Enchanted Tiki Room. And there was something that he said, again, in the same book that we have, that really stood out to me because, you know, it embodies not only the Enchanted Tiki Room, but I really think, you know, just how we view things in Disney World and Disneyland today. Um, And he said that working on the Enchanted Tiki Room impacted the way that he thinks about any attraction at Disneyland. So he said, when the whole room comes to life, And, you know, before people knew what was coming, that just knocked their hats off. And it really, it really was something. So I came to the conclusion, a good attraction is what you do not expect to see. And at the time, this definitely applied to the Enchanted Tiki Room. People did not know what they were getting themselves into. And I think it kind of fueled this fire for these Imagineers this excitement that was created around the Enchanted Tiki Room. And I mean, if you think about his other attractions that he worked on, I think that rings true. But I think it also applies to all the new attractions that we see today. 
You know, there are always things that you don't expect, things that you don't see coming, and those are the wow moments. I mean, in every attraction, I feel like it has that. Yeah, and I think you can even see a lot of parallels because then he went on to work heavily on Haunted Mansion. You can see a lot of how these audio animatronics and doing the unexpected, using song to tell story, there's a lot of parallels there that I think maybe could go unnoticed of that. The Enchanted Tiki Room paved the way for a lot of other things, not just in groundbreaking technology of the audio animatronics, but just the use of telling story through song, through a theater setting as well. Think of all the shows that came after this, uh, show-type attractions that we wouldn't have thought of. It's uh, it's really significant. It is. So I feel like that lays the groundwork as far as history. And again, you know, you can go into much more detail, but you know, this has for sure for us given us a greater appreciation of just everything that built up to, you know, the Tiki Room. I want to go ride it right now. I know. And we actually have been on it recently. We didn't go with our family, your family, like we planned to. But I want to say like a week before, was it, that we did this? I think so. I think we've done it a couple of times since we moved down here. So, I mean, that's pretty significant since we just kind of pick and choose whatever we want to do. But let's talk about overlays because this is particularly interesting because it is important to note that the Enchanted Tiki Room has not just always been the same show. Yep. And so this is kind of a weird spot in the history and it's kind of a polarizing spot in the history. And in this case, we're talking specifically at the ma- about the Magic Kingdom version. So by the mid-1990s, the Tiki Room in Magic Kingdom was showing its age and had lost the interest of a lot of the guests. And so Imagineers were given the choice to either plus the idea, which plus is a term that you'll see a lot of Imagineers use of basically taking something and transforming it into something better. They never want to just refurb something. They want to make it better. To plus the idea or to completely replace the attraction. And based on the literature that I read, it doesn't really even seem like they were given the choice to just refurb it back to the original version. It seems like they were told either you refurb it to, or you change it to something new or we get rid of it. And so of course the Imagineers at the time knew the significance of the Enchanted Tiki Room. And so they decided to go with this plusing idea. So, What they decided to do was to try to incorporate new, more popular characters into the already existing story. The two characters that they chose are Zazu from The Lion King and Iago from Aladdin. So in 1998, they opened up the Enchanted Tiki Room under new management. Quick note about Iago and Zazu. So Iago was voiced by Gilbert Gottfried, who voiced him in animated Aladdin. But I found it interesting that Zazu was not voiced by Rowan Atkinson, which I asked you before, you've never seen the Mr. Bean movies? I have not. Okay, so Rowan Atkinson is Mr. Bean. Okay. He also played the voice of Zazu. But for whatever reason, they could not get him to do Zazu for under new management. Oh, I wonder why. So instead, they got Michael Goh 
who played or Goff, who played Zazu in the Timon and Pumbaa video game. <laughs> Which just seems so, like so the random. Understudy. Yeah, it seems so random. I don't I I'm trying to think if Rowan Atkinson did Zazu in like Lion King one and a half, you know? Mm-hmm. Or even the TV show. Didn't they have a TV show for a while? Wasn't there a Timon and Pumbaa TV show? Uh, oh, goodness. I don't remember. I feel like everything in the 90s got a direct-to-DVD movie and a TV show on Disney Channel. Oh, absolutely. I think Lion King had two. They had Lion King 2 and Lion King 1 and a half. Or just mm-hmm. one, just half. Lion King half or something. I think it was one and a half. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't know. But it was it was funny. I had both. Anyway, so they put Zazu and Iago into the story. They changed it up where basically Iago made the Tiki gods mad and he was banished. And then he comes back at the end of the show. And that stayed there until 2011. So most of my memories growing up are with under new management. I was going to say the same thing. So my Nana... My dad's mom loves the Enchanted Tiki Room, and it would be like a staple. We would usually, as kids, we would ride, I guess not ride, we would go to this attraction both days that we would go to Magic Kingdom, because we were always like a two Magic Kingdom park family, because there was so much to do. And I like vividly remember this under new management, and what I remember most is that they only played a little snippet of like the tiki 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 <laughs> how many tiki's <laughs> i think room. there's only three in the official title well whatever it is they only played a little snippet and then they were cut off and i just remember like wishing i knew the rest of the song because my nana talked so highly about it and we always went and watched it but i feel like she was always upset <laughs> When we left because it was never the actual show. I remember because I didn't. So I would have been six at the time that under new management came out. You would have been four, four. or five. Yeah. So I don't think either of us really have memories of Walt Disney's enchanted Tiki room in magic kingdom beforehand. So this is really our first I didn't experience it, at least in a way that I was cognizant, until it came back in 2011. So, I don't. I never had bad feelings about under new management, but I think anybody who experienced the real version and then saw under new management hated it. But for us, I think we're in this like unique age period of like ten years where it was the only thing we knew. And so it wasn't bad. I just always associated Iago and Zazu with the Enchanted Tiki Room, which now I'm realiz- realizing is like sacrilegious. Which, yeah, I was going to say, it's honestly hilarious to just think like, oh, they're birds. They must they must be in the Tiki Room. And yeah, I mean, very vividly remember that show. I wonder if it would have went over better if they had chose like the Three Caballeros. Too many birds. And that's a that's a lot of singing birds. I just don't know if that would have given them like the, you know, popular character feel that they were going for. Because if you think about it, Aladdin and the Lion King 
were two very popular movies. So if you're trying to draw people in, I mean, the sign, it was a cute sign leading up to the tiki room where they were both sitting there. And I can see how that would appeal to children and to, you know, just people who wanted to experience something new. I mean, that would draw them in. Now, the show itself might not have impressed them, apparently, but it's enough to at least bring them in. And I feel like that's what they want. They want the foot traffic. I mean, honestly, the Tiki God coming up in the middle of the theater, that's the most vivid memory I have as a child from this attraction. Also terrifying. It was terrifying, but it was an impressive animatronic. It was. It yeah. was super cool, and it was scary. Now, now the story, which we'll get to in just a second, that the like the war song, that's not scary. No, but I don't think that that's what Walt was going for. So I know, it fits. I'm just saying they were different emotions being pulled out for this overlay. Yeah. But we're not going to be the two to like bash this one because I feel like a lot of our memories are with it. Now, now that I've seen both of them, I obviously like Walt's version better. Um, but under new management doesn't like make me cringe like I think a lot of other people do. That Yes, that's very fair. I mean, in part of me, obviously I can go watch it on YouTube, but like it's it's fun to see it. You know, again, it's the nostalgia factor. We're also very like we don't care if intellectual property enters the park. Like, no. We're always in that camp. We don't care. Anyway, so as the story goes, in 2011, the theater caught fire in the under new management. Uh, Did overlay. it just catch fire? <laughs> might have been a match in there. It was a small fire, but they used that as their opportunity to take it under refurb again. And they revamped it back to almost its original version. They have, they've abbreviated it. They took out one song. And Disneyland's version also took out the same song, right? Well, it was a long show. I mean, I think um, I could be a little off, but when the show first started with Walt's version, I think it was about 17 minutes long. So that's pretty long. So I'm not surprised that they shortened it just a little bit. And then Tokyo has had three different versions. So we said it was an opening day attraction for Tokyo. They had a second version, which seems super weird, and I can't even begin to explain it what it, what it was. Now, their third version is what they currently have has Stitch included in it. And essentially the story is that the Tiki Birds are there and Stitch like hijacks it and he really wants to perform with them. And so he does. And at the end of it, he declares that everybody in the theater is part of his Ohana. A little random. Definitely random. I can see how people would be interested in that because it's Stitch. And the animatronic that we saw in video footage is pretty cute. He's playing the guitar. He's Or is it like a ukulele? Uh, well, so, yeah. He's playing a stringed instrument. But it, it's super cute. And the idea, even though it's a little flawed, I mean, it has like, you know, your typical happy ending. I want to go see it when we go to Tokyo. I mean, obviously, I'm interested in seeing it, but I don't think that that would be a better version here. Okay, so how cool would it be if it was Elvis Stitch? 
Okay, well, that'd be That would be awesome, right? Maybe he has, like, an outfit change in the middle. Yeah. And he sings, like, Burn in Love. We should suggest that. I'll put it in the comment box (laughs) for Tokyo Disneyland. So let's get into the current story and try to get a better understanding of it. We always talk about cues, and we'll talk about that in here in just a second. But I also want to talk about the building in Magic Kingdom because... It often goes overlooked, I think, but it's a massively tall building in Adventureland. And I think it sort of gets blocked by the magic carpets of Aladdin, especially based on where you would typically come into Adventureland from the hub area. But since the Tiki Room is set in the South Pacific, it can be true to form and culture of the South Pacific and still fit within Adventureland's Magic Kingdom. That fits with the story that's laid out about adventure and what adventure looks like, whatever that might be. However, the next time you're there, look up at the very top and notice the sculptures that they have at the very top of the tower. And this is something Disney for so long, and I think they've abandoned it more recently, was so worried about sight lines and making sure that story stayed true based on everything that you could see. Which I completely support. So they realized that when they built this tower so tall above the Enchanted Tiki Room that you could see it from parts of Frontierland, especially when you go up the hill to go to Splash Mountain or if you get on Big Thunder Mountain, you can see the tip top of this building. And so what they decided to do was use these Asian water buffaloes as the animals that they would make this top sculpture out of. The idea being that when you look at them from afar, from Frontierland, they look like a Texas Longhorn. Interesting. I'm definitely going to do this next time we go to Magic Kingdom. So essentially, it's. I mean, I think that's just so cool that they would think about something like that, of making an animal that's appropriate, that can be interpreted based on the area that you're in. Yeah, I mean, that just goes to show, like, that storytelling, you know, mindset that they had was just so strong. Because, like, I I would just love to know who was the person responsible for finding specifically an Asian water buffalo and, like, bringing that to the table. Like, this is what I found. This is what it'll look like. And this is why. It's very well thought out. I'm going to have to tell my dad that as a University of Texas alumni. He's probably going to give me like some hook 'em horns garbage that, you know, Texas does. <laughs> Texas Longhorns. But I thought that was cool. It was pretty cool. So then as you get into the queue and you get into the pre-show area, it features two toucans named Clyde and Claude. And after introducing themselves, they begin telling a story of how they found the Sunshine Pavilion and the Tiki Room while it, when they escaped from the various animals of the Jungle Cruise. Now, I'm going to be honest. I can't understand a single word that they're saying. It is too loud or they're too soft. I think they have accents too. I know the cast member also plays a speaking role in this. And they're always like holding the microphone way too close to their face. And you can't understand a single word. Like muffled. So, unfortunately, I feel like I've always missed this part. I will say... What I do remember is they make other animal sounds. 
So I do feel like at one point maybe they make like a roar and like they try to act it out. Um, so I could kind of see where it's coming from, but I never made that connection that they were referencing the Jungle Cruise. Which is cool. It is cool. I like the tie-in. Maybe in this Jungle Cruise revamp, they can even tie them closer together. Ooh, that would be cool. So then once you get inside the presentation and the show that you are encountering features a cast of over 150 talking, singing, and dancing birds, flowers, tiki drummers, and tiki totem poles that perform the attraction's signature tunes. So you hear the tiki, tiki, tiki room written by the Sherman Brothers and let's all sing like the birdies sing. And then you get to the finale that has every audio animatronic singing a rousing version of the Hawaiian war chant song. After they finish that up, the exit music plays where they have their own rendition of hi-ho where they're basically telling you to leave. But they do it in such a cute way. They do do it in a cute way. And that pretty much wraps it up as far as the story. I mean, there's not too much there. I mean, I think we're all kind of aware of the cool effects that they can do of making it seem like it's raining on the outside. Uh, The walls and the tiki boards talking and singing is pretty cool. I mean, and that's really the wow factor is, you know, your focal point when you are first in there is you're watching the birds and then, you know, they just reveal pieces of the room at a time. So it might be the flowers and then the tiki poles and then, you know, whatever it might be until they're all singing together. And I think that wow factor that Mark Davis was talking about was like that ending, that finale where it's just like, oh, my gosh. And, you know, they're all singing together together. So, I mean, again, like you said, it's not this crazy in-depth story. I do like that the pre-show is setting you up for what you're going to see. Again, I wish we could really understand what they were saying. Like if they could give us like, you know. Closed uh, captioning. Closed captioning or something. That would be great. They could just turn up the volume just a little bit. That would be great. Um, Yeah, I don't know if they just don't want you to be able to hear it from outside. The it's just a really area. loud area as well. Like the magic carpets ride is super loud. I mean, the Dole Whip stand is the right Dole there. The Dole Whip stand is very loud. And it gets a little bit congested right there as you get closer to pirates. And Jungle Cruise. So maybe we needed... We didn't actually do this in Disneyland because it was closed. Because they were building the Tiki Terrace restaurant when we were out there. Hmm. Wasn't it closed? I don't or know if it was closed. I think we just skipped it. I think we got our Dole Whip and our tahine, and we were just like, eh, it's the tiki room. We made a big mistake. Yeah, that was a grave mistake. Now we know for when we go back. But I do think it's nice that they are trying to tell you a story and explain how these birds got there and why they're there. Um, because it does give you more than just a show at that point. Like, at least you understand what their purpose is. In Adventureland. Last thing I wanted to mention is the four hosts, Fritz, Michael, Jose, and Pierre, they all have distinct nationalities. Mm. And I feel like some of them are obvious, and some of them I had no idea. So I'm hoping you didn't read my notes. I'm going to ask you to guess Okay, where they're from. Jose, well, I'll give you the easy ones. Jose, don't give me the easy Let me 
Give me something. Give me a pat on the back. Jose. Jose is Hispanic. But what country is he from? Think about his colors. His colors. Well, see, it's also, it's hard, too, to know which bird is which, honestly. Because they have name tags for a reason. They do, they do have name <laughs> tags for a reason. Um, Mexico? Correct. Okay. Pierre? He's got to be French. His accent is thick. Okay. Michael? I don't have a clue. So you said it's Michael and Fritz are left over? Yep. Oh, goodness. I can't really hear them in my head. I can hear Jose. Michael has like a high-pitched voice, does he? Kind of. Is he Irish? Like you? You looked at the notes, didn't you? I don't know. I didn't know. That was honestly a guess. I think you subconsciously read it earlier. I might have. Yes, Michael is Irish. Fritz. What is he? German. German. Which is interesting because in that uh, quote from Richard Sherman, he said that Walt said Dutch. So mm. what made them change from Dutch to either German or Irish? I don't maybe know. it has something to do with like the accent. Like maybe it leaned more one way or the other. I never, ever would have thought German and Irish. And, then, and now... After you hear this and you listen to like the intros, especially, you can hear it more, but I never picked up on it. I mean, you can pick up on Jose and Pierre. But it's kind of funny, too, that you're thinking about these tropical birds. They're in a tiki room. I don't think, yeah, I really don't think tropical birds in Ireland mix very well. Or even French. When I think about, you know, French things, I do not think tropical tiki room. Maybe they were colonized. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> now we're we're going into some kind of who knows what. But I think that that just about covers it. All right. So let's share our listener stories before we get to our Neverland scores at the very end. So if we ask these every week on our Facebook group, you can find that at Detour to Neverland Podcast Community. We put the rubric up there and allow you guys to share information that you want to for us to read on the show. So start off, our friend Joshua said, this photo sums up my feelings about the topic. And it's just a photo of Walt just like adoring Jose. He yeah, I looks feel like, like I the, can picture it right now. He's He looks like the proudest dad on planet Earth looking at Jose. So like, how can you not just love this attraction? Ryan said, we wouldn't have so many other great attractions if it wasn't for the Enchanted Tiki Room, which I completely agree with. I agree, yep. Erica said, the running joke in my family is my dad and Dan always fall asleep in the Tiki Room. We do eat Dole Whip in there always. Now, other people said this as well. I've never eaten in the Tiki Room. I didn't know it was a thing. Me neither. And obviously, we're not talking about, you know, like covid era because you were definitely not eating in any kind of attraction or queue right now. But yeah, a lot of people said this and I would have just always expected that that would be a big no-no. But obviously if multiple people do it, I guess it's acceptable. Unless it's only Disneyland's version. I don't know. Yeah. So we might need some more insight onto this whole bringing food into the show because that would be quite the enjoyable experience. I would like that. A Dole Whip, a show, 
it's kind of like what Walt originally planned. So tell the cast member that when you're going in. Say, I'm trying to experience this the way that Walt intentionally planned. <laughs> and see what they say. <laughs> yep. Erica also gave scores. She gave it high marks for immersion, nostalgia, and leave it or fix it. So like, don't change it at all. Okay. Our friend Sean said, love the show for the nostalgia and Walt Factor. Definitely a good once per trip attraction. 6.25. His better half, Jackie, said, completely agree. A 7.5 with a Dole Whip. So another person saying Dole Whip. Oh, okay. Anna said, I'd give it a 1.75. I miss when they had the Iago version because it was more engaging and funny. I understand that it was one of Walt's first attractions, but it just doesn't do much for me. Which I honestly understand that. Which I'm hoping that's what this episode can accomplish. Is to give a a deeper appreciation through the history of it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I do always think there's something to be said for when something's new or when they can incorporate, you know, characters that we know and love so much. But I'm glad they kept it, the original here, but they can have like the stitch version in Tokyo, you know, like maybe mix it up a little, but not so close to home or not in Disneyland. Yeah, Disneyland, at the very least, needs to keep the original version forever. Forever and ever. Yeah. What if they tore down Magic Kingdoms to put a second uh, Magic Carpets of Aladdin up? Like Dumbo. Like a second Dumbo? I would be out there picketing. I've never never picketed anything. I normally just go with flow with changes, but that's one that I would would lose it. Yeah, that would be quite interesting if they were to uh, plus it. Is that the term? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just plus Literally that Literally plus. It'd really be multiplying <laughs> it times two. Uh, and then your mother chimed in, Catherine. She said, it reminds me of my mother-in-law, your Nana. Nana. And how she loved that attraction. A good family trip memories. And she gave it high marks for a nostalgia and definitely ride it at least once. She said, never fast pass it. Pretty much everybody said, never fast pass it. Yeah. You don't oh, really need God. to. Yeah. Do they even do fast pass for this one? I think they do. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. I just can't. It's so hard to picture it right now. I mean, they might because I feel like they do have two. Like they make you go through the turnstiles to get in there. So they might have two for that reason. But yeah, that would be kind of a waste. So our scores. After the, our largest difference last week or last episode now we have the same score we are spot on for this one a six and a half which is a good score which i think we both rated it really high in nostalgia in smile factor smile factor and love it or fix it saying don't you dare change it don't you dare yeah i i think you have to keep disneyland if you want to change magic kingdoms it better be good. I honestly don't even think you can at this point. You don't think so? I don't think so. I Unless- just don't know what they would do to it. I feel like it's almost like they tried. I don't want to say they failed, but I don't think it worked out the way that they wanted it to. I, I'd have to look at the numbers as far as, you know, traffic and stuff. I'm no expert, but I mean, they... Brought it back to the original for a reason, I feel like. I do want to point out is that one of the books that we 
read for our research every week is called the Imagineering Field Guide. <laughs> and they have one for every park. So I'd highly recommend you picking it up if anybody's interested in it. And just gives you a little bit of background on the stuff. Uh, but the Magic Kingdom book was written in 2005. And so it ended the Enchanted Tiki Room blurb basically saying, hey, there's this, br- this great <laughs> attraction called brand new under new management i mean it wasn't brand new at that point well but yeah i just thought it was hilarious that they just like it it ended the chapter and it was like this is what it is that's the problem with books brendan they don't just magically update so yeah they're really cool books and it's fun to look at but some of them are a little outdated so it's good for some of like the history facts but like we didn't even buy the hollywood studios one because it doesn't have toy story land it doesn't have galaxy's edge it's like, what are you going to tell me about? Muppets? <laughs> Which could have helped. Could have helped. But, um, yeah, I, I just think kind of final thoughts on this attraction is I think that's almost how you have to view it. You're not going to get in there and get wowed like people did in 1963. At that point in time, like you're, you're we're not going to be able to get that same feeling just based on other experiences that we've had. But if you can just think about how this paved the way for so many other different things that it was such a monumental opening when it finally did and we didn't even get into how big the actually plans were for magic kingdom it was supposed to be a much larger pavilion than it ended up being which we can talk about in a future episode but (laughs) i think it's just something that we talk about feeling this connection to walt And you feel that a lot in Disneyland. And I think there's a few distinct spots that you can feel it in Disney World as well. And I think Epcot is one of them to a certain extent. Certain areas. Carousel of Progress and the Tiki Room. I think are the big ones that stand out to me. Is like You can see the imprint that Walt made on this. Well, and if nothing else, I mean, the last thing that I feel like if you still don't have that, you know, same appreciation that we're trying to hit home, go look up that picture of Walt standing there with all these audio animatronic birds and just look at his face. And I think that will be a good place to intro yourself into the ride, the attraction when you go see it. I'm going to make that picture the thumbnail for this episode. You should. So if you need to see it, it'll be on the thumbnail. uh, And then we can post it in our story as well. Yes. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. We had so much fun chatting with you about Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. We hope you enjoyed it as well. If we missed anything or if you have some favorite facts or storytelling aspects about this attraction, please feel free to reach out. We'd love sharing those with the listeners and trying to expand on the story as very much as we can. And I think that'll be it. So we will be back next week with a brand new episode. As we mentioned before, we're getting close to being able to do restaurant storytelling episodes. So maybe look out for one of those very soon. And we look forward to bringing that to you. So hope you all have a wonderful weekend and we will chat with you next week. 
Thank you for listening to Detour to Neverland. Make sure you subscribe and leave us an iTunes review if you enjoyed the show. Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram at Detour to Neverland or visit DetourToNeverland.com. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. See you real soon.